Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 16. Uh, we're following the, uh, the way in which our former minister, Dr. Boyce, broke up this chapter. I'm trying to uh, follow his breakup of the passages. I think he's identified the preaching sections. And we're going to look at verse 17 this morning, and uh, let's hear the Word of God together. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, just note the footnote there, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. This is the word of the Lord. An old Cornishman, Cornwall is in the bottom left-hand corner of the British Isles going out into the Atlantic, and they have a an accent all of their own, which I will not try to imitate. I tried at the first service. Nobody could understand a word I was saying. So I'm not going to even try and imitate it. But this old Cornishman once complained about his minister in these terms. He said about his minister, when he says, lastly, he do last. (laughs) At least you got it this time. They didn't even get that last time. You're a brighter congregation. Now, in some ways, the Apostle Paul is doing this here in uh, the end of Romans. Romans is a moderately long letter, by no means the longest letter in the New Testament, but it has a disproportionately long conclusion. The conclusion actually begins in chapter 15, and a big section of chapter 15, and now all of chapter 16. Uh, Of the 16 chapters, one and a half chapters are taken up with his final greetings, as we've noted. Uh, He begins by greeting our sister Phoebe here in chapter 16, verse 1, the bearer of the letter. And then he sends greetings to those he knows and those he knows of in the church uh, in Rome. And his greetings end with a directive, the directive in verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, That greeting, which is familiar to other books of the New Testament and therefore was the common practice in the ancient church, that greeting served the, the, uh, the warmth of the way in which Christian people met together and greeted one another in those days. It was a mark of fellowship in the early church. It it was a sign of the unity and harmony and the oneness of the family of God. And it may very well be that was giving that greeting and then conveying the greeting of all the churches at the end of verse 16 that prompts the apostle to go, as it were, out on a limb here. He kind of moves away. He'll return to the greetings, but he moves away to one side and he injects this warning that he gives to the churches. Now, some commentators have been thrown by this. 
Some commentators ask the question, why has Paul all of a sudden turned fierce and angry? Why does he use such frightening language? Well, I want to say that I don't think Paul is being fierce and angry. I think if you find that he's being fierce and angry, maybe the problem is in you. You're too sensitive or, or you've become scared if anyone says anything strong to you that, that therefore they're trying to frighten you. No, the apostle is being firm. Uh, the warmth of his greetings justify his concern at this point, his concern over the churches there that he has just greeted warmly, and the danger to those churches of those who would sow seeds of division and disturb the peace of those churches. Hence, the apostle weighs in on those who, he says, cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Now, in verse 17, he's talking to everybody in the church. The Greek word is the word adelphoi, which uh, the footnote of the ESV correctly identifies as meaning brothers and sisters. The whole church, everybody in the church, male, female, young, old, and so on. And he's speaking in general terms when he issues this warning. Uh, He characterizes the people who are disturbing the peace. He does not identify them. He doesn't tell us what the errors were, what the difficulties were. He just tells you the profile of the kind of people who introduce errors and difficulties into the church. And he does that deliberately. I don't know if you know or remember a passage in Corinthians where Paul is talking about himself having a thorn in the flesh. A lot of ink has been spilt by commentators over the years trying to identify what the thorn in the flesh was, but nobody's got it yet. That's because Paul leaves it unstated because he wants the principle that he's going to enunciate to be applicable, 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 Oh, my goodness me. Uh, Applicable. The longer I'm in America, the worse my English gets. Applicable (laughs) to every situation, not just to his circumstances, but to your circumstances. And so he goes on to say, God says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So whatever your weakness is, God's strength can be made perfect in your weakness. Paul here does a similar thing. He does not identify the nature of the problem. He gives us a a characterization of those who introduce the problem. Now, was Paul overreacting when he wrote this? Well, he wasn't overreacting because we read in Philippians, and Philippians is written from Rome, what Paul found when he got there. Here's what he writes. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here, that is, in prison for the defense of the gospel. The former, however, preach Christ out of selfish ambition or partisanship, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. So that's the background then to this little paragraph that we're looking at today. And in this little paragraph, 
What the apostle does is to describe the traits, or traits, depending on your pronunciation, of those who are stirring up trouble in the Roman church. The first trait is this. They are dismissive. They are dismissive. Dismissive of what? They are dismissive of the authority and the teaching of the apostle himself. They are setting themselves up apart from the appointed ministry of the church by dismissing the apostle and his teaching and thereby dismissing those who have been appointed by the church to imitate the apostle by proclaiming the whole counsel of God. They are talking intentionally in a way that is contrary, Paul says, to the doctrine that you have been taught. Paul urges the Romans, and he urges us, to look out for those who easily dismiss the teaching of the church. You see, the church has authority as the church. It's a delegated authority. It comes to us from the, the apostles themselves, the apostolic church. We are one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The apostolic message that we proclaim is that found in Holy Scripture, in the entirety of Scripture, as we'll see. Where does the authority lie? It lies in all Scripture. Paul says, all Scripture has been breathed of God. Most errors in the church derive from taking, extracting, and isolating some verse or part of a verse out of the Scripture and then building a case on that verse to the exclusion of the total meaning of Scripture. As Reformed believers, we believe strongly in sola scriptura. That is that the primary and supreme authority in the church is the Word of God breathed out by God and written for our learning. But we also believe in tota scriptura. That is all scripture. That the, that the part is explicable from the whole. That you, that you interpret the little bits of the Bible from the global picture of the Bible. Scripture interprets Scripture. That's why we need to range widely in our use of Scripture when we're paying attention to one part of Scripture. This is the way that the apostles handled Scripture. This is the kind of way in which the creeds were formed and later the Reformed confessions came to, to be. And it takes priority in the life of the church. Now, even in this letter, the letter of Romans, Paul has already been conscious of pushback that he might receive. If you read Romans from the very beginning, and it won't take you long, you can do it this afternoon while you're drinking a coffee uh, or sunning yourself out in your yard or on the street if you don't have a yard. Uh, 
whatever. If you read this, you'll, you'll notice that Paul throughout this book is conscious of people, as it were, sitting on his shoulder, critiquing what he's writing. You see that, for example, in chapter 2, verse 12, when he talks about people who set themselves up as, quote, judges, people who judge your conscience, they judge your behavior, they judge your claim to have faith in Christ and to be a Christian on the basis that Paul has taught about faith in Christ alone being the way of salvation. In chapter 2, verse 19, he addresses those who set themselves up to be, quote, a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. That is in the law rather than in the gospel, an embodiment of knowledge and truth. And he says about these people who set themselves up like this, to be your guides and your teachers and your mentors, he says about these people, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. In chapter 3, he talks about them and he he reacts against those who want to reinstate the works of the law and put them up front and center, thereby creating a barrier to non-Jews, Gentiles, from being right with God. And his response to that attempt is to underline this fundamental truth, as he puts it. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's fundamental. We are justified by faith apart from works of the law. What we find today, even in evangelical circles in America, is are people who hold to the five points of Calvinism, but they're writing books in favor of salvation by faith plus works. And we need to be conscious of that. So Paul is aware of this, and we need to be aware of it too. Uh, There are people today who make second-degree matters first-degree matters. The things that Paul addressed earlier on in chapter 14, eating and drinking, Sabbath observance, and so on. Or the people who want to create a theocracy, that is, they want to turn the world, the nation, into a kind of uh, echo of Israel in the Old Covenant. Uh, And there are those who want to set themselves up as critics of your heart and your mind and your life and who pass judgment on the servant of another, he says. Paul warns that they're attacking Christ, whose servant you are. We need to be aware of these people who are dismissive of the apostolic word. Secondly, these people, second tray, is that they are divisive or divisive. We are to watch out, he says, for those who cause divisions. They may be causing divisions by spreading heterodoxy, that is, unsound doctrine, or heteropraxy, that is, they're encouraging practices that are contrary to the law of Christ. Their effect is to cause disunity. 
within the assembly of God. Very, very often these people are divisive by drawing people into their circle, demanding, usually subtly demanding, but demanding nonetheless loyalty to themselves rather than to the church of God. I want to quote from Dr. Boyce right here. Often these people who show up in a congregation suddenly, usually from another church where they've also caused trouble, though they give no indication of that when they come, they're knowledgeable, they usually have considerable abilities, they are leaders in the sense that they have enthusiasm and they get people to follow them easily. Generally, they are used to teaching and they want to fill this role in their new church. I'm not a prophet, but I think Dr. Boyce is reflecting his experience there. It's been my experience as well. There are churches, churches need people to serve. Very often these people come to a church willing to serve. So they're very quickly taken on, given jobs to do, put to work. As Dr. Boyce puts it, without any due diligence or investigating previous churches where they've been. And these people use this profile they get in their new church as a springboard. I want to read how Dr. Boyce continues here. Problems develop quickly. They begin pushing a particular doctrine to the exclusion of other equally important truths. They're critical of those who disagree with them. And in time when people do not go their way, and not all people do, because God has some in every church who are not so easily taken in, who care for other believers, who are not serving themselves, these unbalanced and divisive teachers pull most of their followers away from the church altogether. Now you find this to be especially true among those whose goal is to give practical answers to questions of behavior and relationships and various practices like Sabbath observance. Invariably, invariably, this leads to people airing their opinion and making their opinion absolute. Not only absolute for them, but they want to bring you within the orbit of their position. There's this ridiculous example, I just find it totally ridiculous, of a preacher who, who addressed the women in his congregation, and he spoke to the women in the congregation like this, that if ever they're out walking and a man draws up in a car and asks you directions, you must remember, you cannot tell a man what to do. So you have to be, avoid any directions that are personal or direct in quotes. That's what the guy said. This is ridiculous. I mean, seriously? He goes on to give the reason. You will undermine their masculinity. Now, I guess if a man draws up his car and asks for directions, he wants to be told how to get to his destination. 
And if you telling him how to get to his destination undermines his masculinity, he didn't have any to begin with. <laughs> anyway, uh, the, the, those are But you see, once you get into the area of breaking down things which the Bible does not do, and start to try to be specific in the guidance you give, you just dig a hole for yourself. The reality is that the New Testament doesn't spell out in detail what you should or shouldn't do on the Sabbath. That's Paul's argument, by the way, in chapter 14. Each individual believer has a conscience, and they have to act according to their conscience. You have to act according to your conscience. I have no business telling you your conscience how it should react or behave. That's above my pay grade. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. You have the Word of God. You have the Holy Spirit of God. You're answerable to Jesus, not to me, not to the session of the church in these matters that are indifferent about which Paul speaks in chapter 14. Paul was really serious about this issue of freedom. In our confession of faith, we have two chapters on Christian liberty there. Paul says, it is for freedom Christ has set you free. That's why he says about these people, they create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Dr. Boyce reminds us that this is exactly what the Pharisees did. And he quotes from Matthew 25, Jesus said, They tie heavy loads and they put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. What the apostle then has argued is that in things indifferent, that is things where no specific guidelines are laid down for new covenant believers, that no one is empowered to make such guidance up and then project it onto others or require others to conform to their opinions. This is precisely what Paul is addressing here. There are Greek words here that I want you to note in this passage that that Paul uses here. The word para, which means parallel comes from that word, beside or alongside, and didache, the word for teaching and doctrine. These people were bringing their opinions and the doctrine together in one pill, and they want you to take that one pill. They want you to swallow the pill of the doctrine and their opinion. In other words, they want you to see the doctrine through their opinion. They want you to take them both together. Paul is warning against that. It's a devilish thing to do. And so when it comes to a theological issue like faith and salvation, faith and works, want to take them both together, faith and works. Want you to believe you can be justified right now by faith and still be justified by works on the last day. As Federal Vision and New Perspective people and Theonomous sometimes hold. But the fact of the matter is, their opinion is an unbiblical opinion. Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. 
Remember the words of Paul to the Galatians. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again with a yoke of slavery. So these people are dismissive of the apostolic authority. Secondly, they're divisive in the church. Thirdly, they're deceptive. This is how they act and how they succeed. They are deceptive. Now, in what way are they deceptive? Well, look at verse 18. Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. Why does he say that? Well, he's saying that because they look like Christians. They sound like Christians. They say they're Christians. They actually might even project the idea that they're better Christians than the rest of the people in your church. They, they give the appearance of it. They were making claims to be exactly that. Here we find the Apostle Paul being totally frank about them. If divisiveness is the, the effect of what they do, deception is the weapon they use to do it. Now look how he unpacks this for us in two statements I'm going to make. First of all, he describes their motives and then their methods. Their motives, first. They serve their own appetites, he says. Now this could be a reference back to chapter 14. One person believes he may eat anything. The weak person might only eat vegetables. All that big question about the, the strong and the weak and so on. And... Uh, it may refer to that, somebody imposing their view on others about these matters. But I think he has the bigger picture in view. In Philippians, Paul writes about true Christians who cause divisions in churches. Here's what he says about them. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. What is the real issue with these people? They are preoccupied with externals, not with the spirit, but with the physical, with the external. So they're, they're occupied with, not whether you come to church to worship on the Lord's Day, but what you do in your way here and on your way out of here. Do you pick up a Starbucks or do you not pick up a Starbucks? I'm not advertising for Starbucks, by the way. You may get a good coffee if you cross Rittenhouse Square, a uh, um, uh, better one, actually, if you do that. But I'm not urging you to do either of those things. That's up to your conscience. You're perfectly free to decide one way or the other. In our denomination, the PCA, uh, we, we subscribe to the Westminster Standards, and the Westminster Standards say that recreation is an issue, that we should avoid any form of recreation. It's not defined but in our church, that's one option you could take. You can, if you swear to follow by the standards, you can say that you take an exception to that issue of recreation. Because you don't think it means today what it meant then. Or because you, you uh, stand also by the, the, the uh, continental reformed who didn't have an issue about the Sabbath day. Calvin played bowls on the Sabbath day in his backyard, for example. So the point is, I'm not taking one side or the other. I'm just saying that those are matters of your conscience. That's very important. These people then 
they were, their motivation is externals. They have a preoccupation with that. Uh, Calvin says about these people, they have no care for the glory of Christ. No care for the glory of Christ. And then he describes their methods. They use, he says, smooth talk and flattery. I mean, if you listen to these people and they know you're listening to them and heeding them, they will praise you. They will praise you for being, oh, you're a true theologian because you agree with me. Or you're fully reformed because you're on my side. Or you're among the holy people in our church. But you see, all of that's manipulation. By either explicitly or implicitly rubbishing other Christians and praising you, they're seeking to get you to follow them. That's what they're doing. Theodore Beza, one of the great reformers, describes these people like this. These are people who promise much with their words, but offer nothing in reality. You follow such an individual, you think, you would imagine, you would say of this individual that they are concerned more about you and your advantage than they are about themselves. Pesa says, they're only thinking about themselves. In doing these things, such people imitate not Christ, but Satan who deceived Eve and who deceived Peter into trying to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. This shows us that even Orthodox Christians can take false positions and thereby lead many people astray. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle describes such people in these words, deceitful workmen masquerading as the apostles of Christ. The apostle had to deal with such deception continually. They may use empty words, that is, words that sound clever, theological, philosophical, whatever, but they are not. Fine-sounding arguments, which he calls meaningless talk. They might impress the impressionable, but they will seduce the souls of these people and prejudice their faith. So, I think if you look at the book of Romans, you can see a number of these kinds of issues. We've talked about matters of indifference. We've talked about Judaizing faith by inserting works or confusing faith and works. We could talk, as Dr. Boyce does, of those who claim to have special revelations from God themselves to share with you. Or the prosperity gospel. These are all the kinds of things that, that can take place. Now, what are we to do about such people? What are we to do about such people? The Romans had a good reputation. The Romans had a reputation for being sincere Christians who wanted to be, obey God. And what Paul tells us here about, about these Romans is very important. You're obedience is known to all. Now, Paul mentions that because it's their very commitment to be obedient that makes them a target for these kind of false people to come amongst them. 
They look at the... They look at you, Romans, Paul is saying, and they see Christian people who are dead earnest about their faith, who really want to be holy, who desperately want advice on how to live the Christian life. They see that. That's a good thing. But it also puts you at risk. People who are obedient or innocent like this can be susceptible to being taken in by the equivalent of these con artists. That's why Paul says to them, watch out, keep your eyes open for such people. That's why he says, avoid them. They are a serious threat. Get out of their company. Be wise. You want to be good Christians. Therefore, when this lot suggests a more rules-based life, and it seems to work, and it appeals to your desire to know what you should be doing, be wise. Be wise. Seek wisdom. He says this, be wise in what is good and innocent as to what is evil. He says something similar in 1 Corinthians 14. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, innocent. But in your thinking, be adult. Or as Jesus put it, be shrewd as snakes and innocent and doves as doves. So, so there's a kind of innocence. Your innocent desire to please God, to walk worthily of God to do the right thing that leads you to ask people like these how you can do that better. There is a kind of innocence that's gullible, that looks, that, that, that lacks discernment of what is true and false or good or evil. These Romans wanted to do the right thing. And it made them, therefore, a pushover for the powerful personalities who had an agenda. Now, Paul has been addressing this really from chapter 12, where he tells us to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be grown up in your mind. Most of us are too lazy to be grown up in our minds. Paul tells us to, be, to cling to what is good, to overcome evil with good. He writes to the Galatians and he says, do good to all people, especially to those of the family of believers. In Colossians, he says, bearing fruit in every good work. In 1 Thessalonians 5, do what is good for each other and for everyone else. But be innocent, be blameless in respect of evil. See, the Bible sets up the parameters of what is good. Read the Bible. God gives wisdom to those who ask him, so pray. If those aren't the, ask, the, quest, the answers to the questions that you're asking, if you want something more specific, we'll ask the Lord God to show you something more specific. But don't ask other people who basically don't know and who are only going to make up an opinion to entrap you, whether that's a design, it will, in the end, entrap you. It's the way of wisdom. You know, the Christian life is simpler than people want to make it. 
People want to complicate it. Because if they complicate it, then you need them to teach you and help you understand it. They're putting themselves between you and your relationship with the Lord. That's why Paul was so earnest in chapter 14, saying, to their own master they stand and fall. You start critiquing them, you're critiquing somebody else's servant. You are answerable to Christ. Take your questions, your doubts to him. Pray about it. Prayer does things. And read the Bible until the Bible becomes part of the way you think. And you will find your conscience is being educated by the Word of God. Your thoughts are being purified. Your mind is being cleaned by the Holy Spirit. And you will begin to think God's thoughts after Him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would please uh, guide us in our relationship with you. We are eager to know you, to serve you. And sometimes we resort to shortcuts. This morning we come to you as your people asking that through your word proclaimed here and in your word read and in those moments when we are naked in our soul before you in prayer. May you guide us and inform our conscience and help us to live as those who are free towards you. For it is for freedom that Christ has made us free. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.